Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. I hope everybody uh, flips the magazine over, reads it from back to front, and I hope you enjoy all the news and updates from PLSN. I hope you're all listening. Today is another Groundhog Day sort of day in self-isolation. I am in Stony Point, Ontario, and today... I'm very excited to talk to a very good friend of mine who I've met one time before in a bar in New York City with uh, Tiffany Spicer Keys. She introduced us and we ended up having a great night. And then just very recently, Tom Kenny told me to reach out to Mike to uh, get some more insight on how it is to work with Tom Kenny and a slew of other professional top name designer. So I'm very happy to have Michael Appel with me today, multi, multiple Emmy award-winning lighting director and programmer and designer of MA Design. Thank you so much for making the time to hang out with me today. Yeah, thanks for asking me to chat. It's great. How's the weather down in Florida? It's stunning. It's beautiful. It, the weather has been amazing. It's uh you know, nice to be able to get out and just, you know, not be stuck in a gray, you know, the new, up New York, New York gray days that we used to have when we were, you know, this time of year, it would be so rainy and, and, and dull. And down here, it's pretty nice, sunny and beautiful, 70, 70 degrees and breezy. The rational, logical person inside me wants to be angry at the people that are out on the beach in Florida, but they, I have so much sympathy for them. I'm like, man, of yeah, course, I'm, that's where you want to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where you're so, most people, when you're out, you're far away from, it's like no different than what people walking in Central Park. You know, people walk in Central Park, they stay distant from each other and they go around. So, I don't know, it seems it seems uh, that you can, you can so, certainly socially distance yourself on a beach from people. I agree. Yeah. I, uh, the, I think the, uh, the summer break people, I think they're, and the spring breakers, I think that's a little bit different. Yeah, but that's oh, that, that, at that point. No, that was a little. Yeah, that was. Yeah, very yeah. little issue with that. Yeah, that was different. That you know, not not shutting the, the spring breakers down was uh, probably a bit of a mistake. But uh, <laughs> you know, having uh, having everybody close close together like that, and then going back home was definitely not great. But having you know the residents, you know, people that live close to the beach, and you know, going out and exercising, that's you know, uh, probably fine. Yeah. So one of the ones that I really wanted to open up with talking to you is that you and I, and most of my listeners, we're all, we all thrive on the fact that our job requires us to be in different places, different jobs with different people, different teams, almost every day. 
we're rarely doing any the same thing for longer than a week, two weeks. I want to know what it's like for you to go from switching jobs, switching locations every couple of days to being sitting at home for, I mean, it's got to be it's almost two months close now, to yeah. two months now. Mm-hmm. How well, are you, uh, how are you dealing with that? I, I'd say surprisingly well, at least I, I'm, I didn't think that I would be doing as well with it as I am, but I'm enjoying like being around my kids and being with my wife. I don't know if they can say the same. I hope, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things like having, you know, having a, a spouse that travels like I do, it's, I'm sure it's uh, it was an, a big adjustment you know, from my wife uh, early on when we, when we first had kids and now, you know, she's used to me not being around as much. So I think for her, it was, I think a lot, in a lot of ways, a, more of an adjustment when I was, I've been home so much, but um, I've been, you know, as much as I miss the work and I miss my colleagues and I, I miss, you know, just the, you know, the hustle of, of the gigs and the, you know, the excitement of doing live shows and all the things that we, we thrive on when we're out working it's been nice to be home with my family. You know, it's been nice to, you know, spend time with my kids and, um, you know, do some cooking and, you know, just being a little bit more, just a little bit more present, you know, on the day-to-day things. Now it's all different for everybody because, you know, my kids aren't doing their normal activities. My wife's not doing her normal activities. Everybody's just kind of shut down. So we're all kind of figuring it out together, but it's, it, it hasn't been as rough as I thought it would be. Now, again, I'm certainly, looking forward to the day when those, you know, switch gets turned back on and we can all get back to work. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I definitely, definitely miss, miss it. And I, I, you know, certainly miss, miss the people I work with a lot. Cause you know, and you know how it is. They're kind of like your second family in a lot of ways, you know, the people we work with all the time. Uh, so, you know, we've been having zoom calls and, and things like that with, you know, with our colleagues, but it's just not quite the same. No, it's not the same. When, when the world was the way it was just a few months ago, I used to be able to have, I would always be looking forward to my calendar and I would be putting flights in and that would give me a reason to look forward to the flight home. And that kind of was my coping mechanism with my family is that like, Hey, if I'm just going to be gone for a little bit, I'll be right back. You know, we can, we can sort this out before then or after that. And then it would give you a time to just kind of go away and then come back. And yeah. without that, I've, I've had to come up with some different coping mechanisms. Are you finding the same thing to be true? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a different rhythm, right? You know, your your days are, you know, at least in our house, our days are starting later than they usually are, you know. Um, <laughs> yes, you, know you have the, quar- the quarantine schedule. I feel like we're all on a night on night shoots, like, you know, on a film where the schedule is rotated from days to nights and you're just perpetually getting later and later. So, um, you know, we stay, get up late, stay up late. And that's kind of, you know, the rhythm of the house, which is a very different thing, but, you know, it just in terms of the, the rhythm of our lives, it's definitely different. Like having, I know what you mean, like, you know, looking at your, you're out on a gig and you get that email, like, or your flight, you know, you check in for your flight home. It's like, all right, you get that, like, all right, I'm going to reconnect with my family. I'm going to, you know, be getting home. I'm looking forward to like, landing, getting in the Uber and, you know, just, you know, coming in the front door and just like coordinating that, coordinating that dinner time, trying to line up your schedule with your family so that everything is, you know, great and you can be home for dinner and, you know, say goodnight to the kids and all that. So that, that's great. But, you know, now it's, <laughs> we don't have that. So, I mean, you know, for us, like, you know, we're, we have, luckily we have space. We have, um, 
we have a backyard, we, we have a nice community where, our, you know, we can, we can exercise, we go out on bike rides. And, you know, my family, uh, my kids are both athletes, so they are, you know, can't go, they're figure skaters, and they can't go to the rinks, but they're doing off-ice training every day. So they go out and they have their, their own time where they're doing that and they're doing online classes with their coaches. And so everybody's still doing something that keeps them occupied during the day. It's not like we're all just sitting around in the living room staring at CNN. Uh, you know, uh, waiting and waiting for the next bit of bad news of what's not going to open up and what you know how many people have gotten sick. So it's you know we're still doing the in the house. We're still doing things that are you know everybody has their own thing that's going on. And you know, granted, we're not outside the house doing it with other people, but you know, I don't think in terms of a coping mechanism, I think that's kind of how my family is dealt with it we just kind of like have kind of fallen into a routine of what we do every day which is different from what we were doing but it's uh still gives us a you know something to do you know so oh, at seven o'clock i'm going to do this at, you know four o'clock olivia has this to do Lucas, my son lucas has something else going on so i've been getting through the days like that a common joke around my house would be i, I can't miss you if you don't go away but uh, we're not getting as much traction out of that joke yeah lately that's right well you know it's funny like you know my wife and i we've been married in quite a while and uh I, you know we always joke it's like i wonder if we'd be married if we were home you know with each other all the time if i had a nine to five and and was home every night for dinner i wonder if like you know how our relationship what our relationship would look like and uh we always joke that it's like nice that i'm only home nine you know i'm only home for three months out of the year when it boils down to it. <laughs> of on the road nine months you know for eight and a half to nine months is usually my my yearly uh time away from home you know it's not touring but it's spread out over different uh different shows a lot of our family members don't fully understand our our natural ebb and flow as well they think Mm -hmm. that like well are you guys having troubles what's going on why is chris gone so much like no that's that's how we survive that's how it's it's funny when my when my my kids changed um you know their their skating is uh, a bit transient in terms of where the coaches are and, and, and all that. And we have a bunch of rinks near near our house uh, in, in Florida here. So kids went to a different rink, moved to different coaches, and I was away at work. And I would, you know, show up once in a while and then be gone for months at a time and or a month at a time and not be at the rink. And my kids' coaches thought my wife and I were divor- divorced because I was just around <laughs> a little bit. And they're like, oh, yeah, you you know, <laughs> she had to explain to them, no, he just travels a lot. No, he's not. But, they, yeah, it's <laughs> definitely, a, you know, a weird thing. People don't understand it, you know, looking from the outside. It's so, a unique situation. You said that this you're actually finding this to be easier. I wonder if that's because you have honed your adaptation skills over the years. Looking at your list of clients, you have done a little bit of everything. You've done TV, concerts, uh, I mean, I, the list goes on and on, corporate, uh, MTV, CNN, NBC, BET, Nickelodeon, so on and so forth. I would imagine that requires you to work with so many different people that you just have to put your ego aside and just adapt quickly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, every project and every situation has a different requirement, you know, from, from different personalities, um, different levels of... Um, what, you know, expectation and, you know, what moving from situation to situation, you, you really do have to be very flexible. So 
Yeah, I mean, I can just, that's a definite, it's an interesting way to look at it. But yeah, I mean, definitely going from, you know, a project where we're shooting at the White House to a project where you're shooting at an arena to, you know, a, a corporate corporate event to even even wedding or something. I mean, done done so many things um, where you're just going from an event to, you know, to event to, you know, from one client to another and everybody has a specific uh, feel to their event and, and, and a feel to their production. So everything always, you always have to have, you know, that kind of situational awareness where you're of, aware of who's around and aware of your client, aware of their expectations and being able to adapt to those situations. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. How do you deal with that so quickly? I, I would imagine that you have programmers or you have designers who have completely different workflows and you have to just work with it. You just have to like, well, that's not the way I would have preferred to do it, but, but you're the boss today. That's the way we're doing it. And you, you can't even have, you don't even, you don't even have time to say that. You just have to completely switch, switch your workflow. Right. Well, it, it, it helps if you have a few shows with, with that LB under your belt. I mean, the, the first one's always crazy. Like the, my first show with, with Tom, right? My first show with Tom Kenny um, was uh, Laura. He was, Laura Frank was programming lighting for Tom for for a long time. She was doing Bowie, and then eventually she started moving over into media. And Tom was looking for other people to do, you know, his broadcast stuff. So uh, I got recommended by uh, a gaffer um, for a shoot with the Killers and Secret Machines at the Roxy in Boston. And this was for MT, it was an MTV $2 bill. Um, and, you know, I, I just came, kind of came in blind. There was really not, no plot or to, to speak of. And they kind of, it was a very strange working thing where I hadn't even experienced this before, where they kind of just figured it out on site. It was an amazing crew, dumped the trucks, put out, you know, 150 lights in a matter of hours. And we were programming, it was in whole hog days, and I had a Expression 2X as a, as a wing because the show couldn't afford an actual wing. So I had a DMX wing. And, you know, that working with Tom that first time, it was wild. Because, you know, for, you know, the first, for the load-in, for the rehearsals, for the whole thing, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, you've done this before, you've done TV before, you, you know, and we get into the show and I had built a whole bunch of different things and we get into the show and it's like, Tom is like throwing handles in his head. So he's telling me, you know, he's like telling me, make the, you know, stay blue and, and house red and go. And like, you know, it's just this manic craze, like, but it looked awesome. It was like this amazing thing. It was the killers were brand new secret machines were such a cool band and we had such a cool vibe going with them. And the whole, it was such a unique experience. I had never had anything like that before. And then in between bands, I was like totally reworking the console. So we did the first band and then like, like between first and second band, I'm changing the entire layout of how I had everything set up on the desk. And then the second band went, you know, like really smooth and really great. And, um, you know, that was my first, first experience there. And then you go to, you know, a, a designer like that now, um, and then go to uh, a designer like Alan Edelman, who is, very theatrical and has, you know, everything is, is super duper specific where he wants to call every cue. He wants to know where every light is pointed all the time. And is incredibly like super detailed with everything. And it's like a very different approach. So where, you know, you, you, you know, you have to make sure the rundowns are numbered and everything is just kind of dialed in. 
it, you know, going from one to the other is, I, I mean, once you, once you do it once, you kind of know it, and then you can kind of go from there. Remember the, the first show that I did with Alan, one of the, well, it wasn't the first show, but it was the first big like music show. He was, uh, we're, we're at Roseland, the blessed memory. I missed that venue. And uh, we were shooting a show for BET called Rip the Runway. It was a hip hop fashion show. And it was like, the, it was like my first introduction to like real big New York production where, you know, it was like the gaffer was Michael Callahan, who is, is a legendary television gaffer. You know, the crew was, you know, the who's who of Verilite guys at the time, you know, New York guys, it was John Eller and Mikey Smallman and like all these amazing, and Jason Livingston, all these amazing, amazing guys. And I'm there just trying to hang on for dear life and, and, you know, make it, make the show look as good as I can. But I'm, I'm doing, um, I had built all these really cool graphic focuses with the deck lights. And of course, the minute we get into rehearsals and I hit Q1, all the lights go directly into the file spot operator's eyes. And Alan's like, hey, Mike, you know, you, get, you take the lights, the spotlights are complaining, take the lights out of their eyes. So I change my focus, update it, hit the next cue, lights move to another focus, of course, right back in the spot up size. So I, you know, change, I fix that focus, I update it, and of course, next cue, another, another cool looking graphic, right back in the, like, one, going from one focus to the next. And, every, every, and, and he, he says to, he goes on, head, he's on headset, he goes, listen, Appel, if you can't get the, light, the lights out of the spot operator's eyes, I'm going to go out on stage and unplug them myself. <laughs> so it's like, lesson, you know, lesson learned, like, you know, don't have too many graphic deck focuses and make sure they don't have to follow spot <laughs> operators in the eyes. But again, it's like one of those things where you, you know, you go from, well, I know it's kind of a long way around, but going from designer to designer and show to show, you definitely have to be able to adapt to their workflow, adapt to their aesthetic, adapt to their, uh, you, you know, just what they will, the input that they they're looking for from you. You know, a lot of, a lot of people really want you to, uh, you know, put your, you know, your um, creative input into it. But a lot of it, it has to do with how you, you present your work visually. It's not so much what you say. So it's like, you, you don't want to talk about it too much. You just want to say, all right, you know, do the work, it's up on stage, and then have them edit you. And then you go from there. And it's just a matter of finding that balance of, you know, how they, how people like to edit your work. And, uh, what kind of like back and forth you can give between, you know, between the programmer and the LD at that point. I've seen programmers in the past try and pretend like they get a prep, like, Oh, that's not the way I do. I don't busk shows. I only do Q to Q or I don't know how to do that. Designers don't care. Like I don't care. I, I need you to input what I want and I need you to do, you need to make the lights do what I want them to do. You don't get a preference as to how we put this together. Do you ever run into that problem where somebody's like, no, we're gonna need you to, I need you to be able to turn it blue whenever I need you to. You're like, well, I didn't write a cue for that. Well, yeah, but that's not an have answer. to be able to do that. Yeah, not, not right, you know, that is one of, it's, that's one of those things where you can't, uh, you can't say, I don't have that. You know, you have to be prepared. Like, you know, I know like when, when, when we do shows and we, all of a sudden we need, you know, we have to be able to take the audience to blue, to red, to, you know, magenta, to whatever. Like, you know, if you're doing a big arena show, you want to have those things available to you at a moment's notice. And there's no reason not to. It's not like you're limited on the amount of cues you can write. It's not like you're limited on the amount of outs that you give yourself. You know, you can have 
pages of things that where it could give you options and, and so you can react live. I understand if you have a linear show where you know where it starts and you know where it ends and you, you, know, you don't have to have all those parameters where you can jump out of your main queue list and create things on the fly. But if you are doing a show that's live and you need to be able to react in real time to a live change, whether it's having the proper amount of having inhibitors for lights that may be too bright for camera or might not be in the right position at the right time, you have to chase them. You have to have those available. You have to have colors available to change the crowd thing. Just you need to be able to react in real time when the band has decided to take, you know, all of a sudden the band's added another song. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to sit there and run, run the cues from the previous song, or are you going to like come up with something that you have because you've given yourself the ability to, to kind of make things happen And you know, you need to be able to do those things. So, you know, having, you know, having valleys on, you know, you know, the ready, having chases at the ready, having things that you can go to, to animate and accentuate what's happening on stage. That's a big deal. And in saying like, oh, I don't lay shows out like that, that like that is the first way to not get asked back. Absolutely. Because all, yeah, because I mean, you know, you can have a way that you like, I have a way that I like to lay things out. But the way I lay things out on a desk is the bones. All the cues are different. All the, the shows are all different. Everything looks the same uh, to, on the desk, but it doesn't look the same on the stage. So where I know where how the how the show is built so that i can edit the show from any place at any time like i can get into it i know it's like seeing the matrix like you know the way you've laid it out and so that gives you the ability to go in and edit whatever you need to edit but the, mm -hmm. what's being presented on the stage is totally unique to the show and it's totally unique to the band or it's totally unique to the presentation you're doing at the time but the bones of it are, are relatively the same. So the muscle memory is there so you can quickly edit, so you can quickly fix. And then to say to somebody, well, I don't lay, I don't do it that way. It's the, I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah. I've seen it happen. I've had it happen to, to me where I've, I, cause I've been designing, you know, a bunch of shows um, and I have programmers come in and sometimes, you know, it's like, well, I need you to, I need to get this. And I've gotten a response back where it's like, ah, well, you know, I really like to do it this way. I said, listen, it's fine. You can do it that way. I just need it to be this. And if you can do it in your way and this, I'm cool with that. And then of course it doesn't happen that, that way. And you're like, oh, well, I guess your way doesn't, doesn't really work. I mean, I won't tell somebody how to program a desk if they're programming for me because that's deadly. You know, I mean, you want somebody to have their own Everybody has their own method of the way they operate and the way that they, their muscle memory and the way that they, their workflow in the machine, mm -hmm. which is fine. But as, if the thing that I'm asking for isn't out on the stage when it needs to be, then there's a problem with your workflow and a problem with your method. So you had to climb up the ladder to get into the front of house chair. Do you think that your background as an electrician uh, helps you out a lot? Do you think it, it benefits you to know what's happening on the other end of the snake? I, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, having that background of, you know, you know, and hanging lights since I'm a teenager, you know, and, and like being able to understand the mechanism by which the, the, the light works is a big deal. You know, having, having an understanding of the full system that you're working with definitely helps. I mean, you know, I started out, you know, in theater, you know, hanging, I, I 
started out in orchestral services, really like pushing chairs and stands around for an orchestra. And they got asked to, to be on a stage crew to unload a show for a national tour of uh, mystery of Edwin Drood in a, at a, you know, touring house in Brooklyn where I grew up. And from there I realized I enjoyed lighting and, you know, started hanging out with the lighting guys and started, you know, hanging shows and focusing shows and doing all that kind of thing. You know, when you're in it, you know, and, and you really get a sense of like what it takes to put those shows together, it definitely helps you, you know, having the ability because you then you can also understand what the crew is dealing with. Mm-hmm. Like early, it was funny early on in, in my programming career, and it's a good, you know, I told, told a story about Rip the Runway earlier, but it, that was a, a defining show for me because in a lot of ways it showcased my, what I was missing early on in my, in my programming career, which was the ability to relate to what the crew was dealing with. So I was like, you know, working with Alan and trying, I mean, it's a big show. We had, you know, superstar rappers on stage and all this fashion stuff happening. And I'm just trying to like manage it all and, you know, trying to keep, everything running together and the crews on the radio calling me and like my radio must have been somewhere else. Like I'm not even aware of like what's going on. And then it's like, Hey, it's lunchtime. And I go to, Hey, where are we going to lunch? And everybody's gone because everybody hated me because I was the programmer that didn't answer the radio. <laughs> so <laughs> I, um, so That's a terrible miscommunication. Oh, absolutely. It's like, you know, so and it's funny. I, I go to do a show with Steve Leaf, who's a, a great New York gaffer and uh, electrician. And uh, we're in Hollywood, Florida. We're doing an industrial. And I said to, uh, to, to Steve, you know, we're out at dinner, you know, sitting around uh, just the two of us. And I said, well, I don't work with a lot of programmers. Is there anything, you know, you see everybody, you know, you see he at the time he was working with like Richie Tyndall, who was doing, you know, a ton of New York work, like amazing, you know, guy on a Verilite desk and he was working with Laura was doing shows and all these people were, and Steve was involved with all those shows. I said, I don't work with a lot because at the time we weren't doing multiple programming. I wasn't on the level of show where you have multiple programmers. And he said, I said, you know, is there anything that you could, um, tell me like the tips and tricks of what these programmers do that really help and, you know, can, you know, make the show better. And it, it's Steve's way. The only way he could say it, he's like, Mike, you just need to answer your radio. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that, that, that was a moment that I think that changed my career in a lot of ways because it totally turned a light bulb on. So, Oh my God, I'm totally ignoring the needs of the crew that are trying to load in, you know, cause we do these shows that load in until they start the show the shows over and then they start loading out. Like the show is constantly loading in. There's always an ad for a back, you know, for a, you know, behind a talent position or an ad for some band ad that has to get teched out. And I was just totally unaware of all that that was happening. Cause I was so focused on just trying to like manage the desk. And, you know, once I, you know, started answering my radio, all of a sudden, then I became the front, you know, the crew liked me. And then all of a sudden, Hey, then the crew would be like, Hey, why don't you bring Mike back? Because, you know, he actually pays attention. Um, you know, so. God, if I could just take it down all the way down to its core essence of what it is to do a good job, it would be that it would be just answer your fucking radio. Just answer your radio, be, you know, That's... be conscious of what's happening. But again, that goes to like, if Steve had said that to me and I didn't have, I don't think had the background of like hanging and focusing and like, you know, pushing lights around and doing, I might not have had the same realization that I had, 
but um, definitely, you know, I think definitely having a sense of how the systems work and then also what the crew is dealing with and trying to, you know, the mountain they're climbing while we're trying to do a show is, you know, definitely a help having that awareness. Yeah, if you don't respect what's coming through the radio, you're not going to be as inclined to answer your radio. So by you knowing what, how important the information is coming through your radio, that uh, that's a huge leg up. That's going to be my new, that's going to be my new first advice from now on. Just, just make sure your battery's uh, full and answer your fucking radio. That's, that's step one. That's, that, that's true. And actually, you know, I, I work with Tiffany a lot, Tiffany Keys, and she's, she's wonderful at that. Like she had that down well before we started working together, I think, cause she also comes, you know, ground up from, you know, we're, you know, being on the crew and really, you know, being in the trenches, like getting shows built, you know, together and put it put together all that kind of stuff. And she is like, I think probably the best at talking dealing with the crew on radio, always responsive, always like, right. You know, wants to you know be helpful and and we do shows together a lot where she's doing programming with me so i'll be you know doing the main looks and she's working on getting the band stuff together and you know working on you know between acts like making sure things are working and rigging things out with the crew and it's it's amazing to like you know that whole process of you know the back and forth is is an amazing thing because even on shows now big shows that we do we'll try and get a comm channel that just is a background comm channel so we can talk you know, without being on the main lighting channel. So we have a back channel to talk to the guys on stage so that we have, you know, we can work all that stuff out and not even be on radio. So it's all just happening over calm. And that's, you know, it's important. It's a, it's a very important part of the, part of the process. Are you finding that more and more people are putting more aspects of the production on your console? Are you finding that uh, it's getting foggy between what goes to which consoles and how many consoles are necessary? I don't necessarily think that it's what, like on our consoles, no, not really. I mean, certainly in a broadcast situation, you have, we have everything from, you know, we we just are handling the lighting side of it. I don't, I don't usually wind up having to deal with media servers or sometimes people want to put special effects Mm -hmm. on our consoles. And I definitely don't like that. I don't like being, responsible for something that might blow up in somebody's face and have that on my console confetti Mm -hmm. cannons you know cryo jets like you know especially if i don't have a spotter and and that's just it's just not for me you know so usually we're dealing with lighting and lighting alone um we might have some practicals of course because that's just not you know natural but you know in terms of like putting other things on the desk not really you know again again if we were touring and if it was a you know a thing that it was time coded and you know I, that absolutely I would understand, but most of the time we're in a situation, at least I am where I'm doing lighting for, you know, either a broadcast show or corporate event. And there are other departments that are dealing with all of the other elements. Like when we go in to do the NBA all-star game, there's a major special effects component to that with the pyro and cryo and um, major video uh, component. And, you know, those things are so specific, need so much attention that, they really need a dedicated team to deal with those things. We, they wouldn't be served if we were trying to light the show as well as deal with all of those different elements. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important for people to learn a little bit of everything about the theater instead of just focusing on lighting? Do you think it's important for everybody to be kind of have an, a, a well-versed idea of what everybody's doing on the oh, show? Definitely. I mean, you know, it definitely helps to have an awareness of what everybody's, 
everybody's job is. You know, that is a, a huge help in, uh, I mean, you know, coming, coming in and, and understanding that, yeah, the carpenters have a job to do, props have a job to do. Like early on in my, when I was in college, I was, you know, trying to focus, we were, I was lighting a main stage show. One of my advisors there, I was like, you know, complaining that I couldn't get to work. Everybody was running behind, you know, we had an opening night coming up and it was a very complicated set and a very complicated, everything about the show. We were doing Midsummer Night's Dream and they had, we had a, a very complicated bit of scenery. And I couldn't, I was complaining that I couldn't get the work lights out to focus. And my advisor was like, well, listen, everybody has work to do here. Everybody has a job to do. You know, you can, you can focus with the work light it's at like 20% so that everybody can continue to work and they can see what they're doing. Because if they don't get, we don't all get to show up there's no show. And that was, a, you know, a big, you know, teachable moment for me where I was like, yeah, there is, you know, we really, you really do have to be conscious of everybody else's work and everybody else has things that they have to do. And being a team player and being part of the overall project, you can't be just be all about lighting. It can't just be all about what your focus is. You have to be aware of everybody else and collaborate and make, you know, that means, you know, getting your focuses done with the work lights on as much as you can and then touching things up like now we do that now like on broadcast shows like everything we do as as soon as the light comes on as soon as the crew has it ready it's on it's in a focus it's getting ready to be used in the show and then you know but all that's happening while the work lights are on like you know the lights come everything is getting mm -hmm. built as the work lights are on so then we go from go from that to all right we're going to do color temperature balance and we negotiate to get an hour of dark time so we get we negotiate to get an hour of dark time and then, you know, in that dark time, we do color balancing. We also touch up all the focuses we had on the audience that we roughed in while the work lights were on. And you have, um, you know, you, but again, you're not demanding that everybody stop working while you're doing your thing. You have to be aware that, you know, the world goes on and you're not the most important part of it. You're just one, one part of the production and you need to be mindful of that. But having, having an understanding of what everybody else does is, is a big help. I fully agree with that. Uh, I know that you also have a, a musical background. Do you find that that helps the way you program? I think so. I mean, I, I think having having a background in, uh, I, I played bass growing up. I started playing bass when I was in middle school and I played in an orchestra. And that's kind of what led me to, because I was playing in an orchestra in, uh, in, in a community orchestra when I was in high school. And that's how I wound up getting into orchestral services and then, you know, loading in scenery. So you know, in, in, in a roadhouse. So, uh, but being, um, having a musical background and having that, um, I guess just feeling, being able to feel the music, having that, that awareness of like what might become, especially what might be coming next. Well, cause I played, I played in orchestras and then I played in rock bands and I played in jazz bands and I played all the way through college in different types of ensembles that, definitely helped the improv improvisational aspect of my programming and of my lighting and being able to then listen to a band and kind of have a feeling of what's going to happen next and being able to build things in a way that can respond to those situations and saying, all right, well, I might need to be able to ramp on this or, you know, chase on this and be able to manage this. And, you know, I can do this, which will then do, do this kind of action with the lighting, which will then help this part of the, this part of the band goes here, the band goes there. 
having that background of improvisation definitely helps with programming. It definitely helps with just getting a feel for where the band might be going and then helping you to respond on time with something that's appropriate for what's happening on stage. Yeah, it sounds like it just gives you a head start on the on your anticipation of what's about to happen. It gives you uh, one leg up. It sounds yeah. like you're a little yeah, bit ahead want, of the curve there. Right. You want to you want to be there and you want to like just be it like you, I can just like even now I'm sitting in here just thinking about it like you know thinking about a band just kind of ramping up and ramping up and building and building and thinking about what that hit's going to be. And even when the even when bands like you know start doing the you know the, with horn hits like give me one bam and just being being there and being able to hit that like you know, one two pop pop and you're just there ready with with a strobe hit or with a you know a big flash or something that you know or a, something to give give that a little bit of an accent and being able to be part of the you know accentuating all those moments that's that's really great and I think you know being in improvisate in improvisational groups early on when I was uh, you know. I don't play very much anymore, actually. But when I was playing earlier in my life, that was um, a big help. That's great to know. It even bass it allows you to just stay in the pocket and just kind of support the rest of the the show as it exists. Right. It's a, it's a great fundamental to be able to rely on. Yeah, and also having having a lot of uh, interest. I had a lot of interest, and I still do in a lot of different musical styles. Like I. Growing up, I, I listened to, I mean, I listened to classical music. I listened to pop music. I grew up, my, my parents listened to a lot of doo-wop when I was a kid. They were, you know, kids of the 50s. And they, that was the music in the car, like all the time when we were driving somewhere. And it, then I got into, you know, prog rock and listening to Rush. And then, you know, getting, I was in, into jazz and listening to like Chick Corea and all that kind of stuff. And I got into, you know, heavy metal. I was like all over the place, anthrax and New York city, hardcore scene, listening to gorilla biscuits and sick of it all. And youth of today and like bands like that. And just being around all that music and going to live shows of all those things. I would go to, go to see the New York Philharmonic play when I was, you know, I grew up in New York. So I'd be able to have access to all these great venues and all these great bands. And I took, I loved playing all of that kind of stuff. And I loved, seeing all that kind of music and just being around and being having access to those and really enjoying all that kind of music informs you know pretty much everything about my you know musical education so i'm out you know being able to respond to different types of music it doesn't matter what's being played i just love i, I love it really you know it's it, and it's great because you, you when you feel a connection to to music you can i think it definitely it definitely helps you build looks and build a feeling for that music that, you know, it really helps accentuate the, the music and it, it, you know, help the show, help the band, help the look, you know, it's, it's a, it, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's great. Being that was a very eclectic selection of music you just listed. Oh, it's all, yeah. I mean, I was all over the place. I was all absolutely all over the place. Like it, it's, I remember when I, uh, I, we did headbang. This is like years and years ago when MTV two brought headbangers ball back, we, we went to Cleveland. We we're at the Agora theater, you know, classic rock venue in, in Cleveland. And uh, we we're doing Godsmack and anthrax and anthrax was the opening act. So Godsmack came in and we had this, you know, at the time it was a pretty big rig for, for, uh, you know, a show bandit pro- provided the gear and we had a grand one and, 
the guys from Godsmack came in and they did their thing. It was kind of like, you know, treated a little bit more festival style where they kind of built their show out. And we were just giving, as Tom Kenny likes to say, concierge lighting for, you know, for broadcast and making it look good. And then the guy from Anthrax shows up and he's, you know, kind of playing with the Grand MA a little bit, pushing faders up and looking at the stage and nothing's happening. He pulls me off to the side and he goes, listen, man, Anthrax usually plays, you know, like bars that have like park hands. And I'm really a sound guy. So I don't, know this console and i don't know what like i can't like because we had like i don't know maybe 60 or 80 moving lights and he's like i just don't know what to do i'm like it's your lucky day brother because i know every single song but the one new one <laughs> stand aside <laughs> it's like i'll give you the strobes and the mole face because you know where all the hits are but i said you know so the band will look over you you'll be you'll be awesome it'll be great for you you know you can just play along with the band but i had such a good time it was like you know get you know my 15 year old self was just in in, in heaven <laughs> being able to light an anthrax set with 80 moving lights, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome. I had a great time. Oh, that's like a programmer's wet dream right there. Yeah, you're you, the band comes in. Nobody knows how to do it, but you're the, you're the clutch player that can just hop up. And you're like, I got this. And I was yeah, like, I Oh, yeah, I know, thank I know. you, Michael. You're great. I know every song, but the one new one. So I had to, I had to get that one under my belt, but otherwise it was all right. Yeah. And, and it was funny. It's funny though. So that's a highlight for me like that, that show and doing that is a huge highlight. And then people ask me, it's like, Oh, what's, you know, another show that you really love. And I, I always go back to Stephen Sondheim. It was a decade ago because they just did the 90th uh, birthday for Stephen Sondheim streaming, but we did an 80th birthday show for him uh, at Lincoln center for PBS with the New York Philharmonic and basically every Broadway star who had ever been in a, in a Sondheim musical. And like that show was also because it, it was like, you know, the back, like all the different things that I've done is like me, you know, or, you know, dealing with an orchestra dealing. It's a very theatrical, but it's for before broadcast and it's all this amazing music and great performers. And it kind of like was a culmination at the time of like, you know, all the different disciplines that I'd been involved with. And then here we are presenting this, this amazing show. And for me, that was a, uh, uh, a great, uh, you know, another great highlight. So it goes from Anthrax to Stephen Sondheim and like everything in between is like awesome, you know, <laughs> but like those, those things were, are, are definite things and it's such a dichotomy, but you know, in the end, it's all about music and feeling the music and just being, you know, really loving, you know, loving the performance and being a part of all that. Yeah, you'd uh, you'd really be up a creek if you tried to use the same programming for both of those shows. <laughs> very different, very different style, very different looks. Yeah, but uh, but in the in the end, you're just really trying to serve the show, and that's you know that's a that's a big thing about you know when you, when you talk about programming shows, you know it's all about serving the show. So you know, getting the, a console or something to jump through hoops is great if it serves the show. If there's, you know, a thousand macros running and all you're doing is, you know, you're writing single cues or whatever it is, like what, what, like what's the point of having all these macros if it doesn't serve the show? I love, I love things that are complicated mm -hmm. if it really helps, but yep. things, but things that are not complicated, it's like, why are you, why are we complicating something that is simple or can, can, you know, what are we doing to help the show? And so I'll make yep. a console do crazy things if it really is necessary, but otherwise let's keep things simple, keep it, you know, and because I think keeping things simple in a lot of ways helps you get your art out onto the stage. It doesn't, you know, the technology doesn't get in the way as much 
because a lot of times I find that, I mean, I'm sure people have their own way of working, but getting technically complicated for things that don't need to be technically complicated are a stumbling block to getting the best product. And, you know, so I'm kind of, mm-hmm. you know, that's a little bit of a, philo- you know, just like a programming philosophy of like not having things be too complicated unless they really serve the show. Like what does the show Absolutely. need? Absolutely. Programming to what that's- the show needs, not like, you know, because you, you know, you think it's a cool trick that I can do. Oh, look at this cool trick I can do. Okay. But what does the show look like? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the console can do all these things, but what's going on on stage? Like what's the look? Absolutely. One of the other things you brought up that's kind of a profound topic these days is the fake it till you make it philosophy. Whereas the guy from Anthrax, he could have gone his entire career without anybody knowing that he wasn't really a lighting guy until the day that he wasn't on an Anthrax stage. You could tell that he had been able to convince somebody like, well, yeah, I I can do lighting too. And Mm -hmm. by throwing up some faders and hitting some strobes where they belong and whatnot. Right. But eventually that's going to bite you in the butt if, you, if you're not able to catch up. Uh, how do you feel about people that are trying to rock that mentality with, well, I'm just going to f- tell everybody I can do something until I can't? Do you run into that? Uh, some, yes, I run into it sometimes. And I've, I've seen people succeed at it more than fail at it, actually. I mean, I think that people, and I'm, I'm one of them, uh, you know, I took my first media server programming gig without ever programming a media server and it was on a catalyst and i read the i read the manual and i you know came in and i, and I hope for the best um but I, i've seen people kind of like you know start their career and you know kind of like work their way up by kind of like you know being have you know being in the chair and just kind of like you know pushing buttons and getting away with it and then being able to then refine their skills enough to the point where when it really counted they could deliver so I've seen that more so than somebody come, you know, somebody faking it to the point where they crater themselves or crater a show. You know, I've never, I, you know, it, it's, I've seen that a few times, but it, it, it's, uh, I've seen it more so the opposite way where people in our, you know, people are able to then rise to the challenge of saying, all right, well, you know, I can, I can do this and I can, I can be successful with this particular project. And, and running with it and getting getting a, a good job out you know a good product out of it I'm trying to trying to think where i you know i don't want to name names so it's all right <laughs> i've seen it happen but you know where, where, where people fake it and it just doesn't quite go the way that they had hoped and the way the production had i've hoped. seen it i'm with you i've seen it to be more successful than failures but when i have seen it fail i've seen it fail miserably whereas it uh, things like d3 that's one of the ones where you can't just say that, well, yeah, I'm a media server programmer. I'll just learn D3 on the spot. That's right. one place where I've seen it fail terribly where people go like, oh boy, I really don't know. I think the, the separation there is the transparency and the upfront honesty. Like, well, I've never done D3 or I've never done a media server, but I took the training course. Right. So, and I'm available. So right. if you're, if you're willing to take a risk on me, I'll take the yeah. risk on you. Well, in, in a way, that's kind of how I started. I mean, in a way, that's kind of how I got into like full on broadcast programming because I was uh, in New York and I was doing a lot of uh, conventional operating for studio, you know, st- studio work. I was doing, um, you know, like uh, Food Network and, um, you know, co- a show for Comedy Central called Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. And we were doing all these different studio shows. And I had 
gone right after 9-11, I flew myself to, because all my work had dried up, all this, you couldn't get people to be in a studio, you couldn't get talent to fly to New York, like, it was, you couldn't get, get an audience, it was very difficult, so a lot of the shows that I had in, in New York City went away, and I had been on shows with uh, moving lights, where I was, this was, back in the days where conventionals and moving lights weren't on the same desk, so I would be running an Expression 2X, and the guy next to me would be running a whole hog. I was kind of like, you know, realized that, that the automated lights were the way of the future. And when I, 9-11 happened and all my work dried up, I flew myself to Austin and got, um, took a class with uh, Brad Schiller and Vicki Claiborne, you know, on a whole hog. Got trained on the hog, came back to New York and tried, you know, started selling myself around a little bit as much as I could as a, uh, you know, automated lighting program. I got a few jobs, but not much. And I was still doing mostly conventionals. You know, the studio, you know, studio work started to come back after 9-11. And then I was working with, uh, on a show, again, doing conventional programming. And we had a moving light program. And it was Patrick Dearson. And Patrick started this show. Uh, it was a show called Wannabes for MTV. And uh, Patrick started the show on a hog. And then the Grand MA 1 had gone to, I think, version 3. 0.14 software where it was stable <laughs> enough and you know pat thought that he could move the show over to um a grand ma so we this is the early days early days of pre-light right you know the early previs and when rod mclaughlin and bill burner had opened a pre-light office in new york so we went i went with patrick and we took the, the took the hog and set up an ma in this pre, in this previous studio and did you know early rudimentary WYSIWYG stuff but we uh Patrick transferred the show over onto the MA and I was, you know, played a little bit or played around on the MA one a little bit. And then uh, we did the following season on the MA, you know, with the show on the MA one. And then the, the next go around of that show was Patrick couldn't load, you know, it was season three and Patrick couldn't load the show in. So I wound up loading the show in on, on the MA. And that was my first experience on an MA one. And then, Right after that show closed, an LD friend of mine who I had met through the you know, New York scene was like, you do, you know, he contacted me, he says, you do moving lights, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. He goes, well, we're doing, taking that rig from Wannabes and turning it into Alanis, an Alanis Morissette concert for Oxygen. Do you want to program it? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's like, all right, we're going to do it on the Grand MA since that's what's in the room already. <laughs> it's like, Okay. <laughs> so, I, you know, talk about fake it till you make it, man. I had never even taken an MA class. I read the manual and I had Patrick on speed dial, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, and in the end, in the end, the show actually wound up not looking half bad and everybody was happy with it. And um, the, that LD, the LD I was working with was Chris Landy and, you know, who I still work with. Um, we just did a show together in January. He was the LD on um, Misery Index that we shot in January. And Chris recommended me to Dan Kelly, who was lighting the red carpet for the VMAs. So my second real broadcast show on a moving light desk was the red carpet for the VMAs. And that happened, that was on an MA, on an MA1. And then from there, it was like within, you know, basically a month and a half, I wasn't running conventional desks anymore. And I wasn't hanging, because at the time I was still kind of electricianing around too. I was still hanging lights on shows and that all went away. So you know, that, that's a fake it till you make it, I guess. <laughs> you know, I said, that yeah. That is a meteoric fake Yeah, I said yes, and I hope for the best. You know, and luckily I had, you know, people willing to take a chance on me without a proven track record of actually having my act together, so. <laughs> 
Man, that is a success story right there. Yeah. Having be, Dearson be, on speed dials, a, that's a that's a that's a good backup plan though. Yeah. That VMA red carpet was fun. It was um ludicrous where it had move bitch get out the way and came down Sixth Avenue on a double decker bus. We had Avril Levine on the marquee. Um, you know, playing and it was it was it was a great time. It was a lot of fun. And like you know, once you do a show like that, you just can't, it's like, you just want to do more of that kind of stuff. You know, you just want to be involved in that, in that. You were hooked. I was totally hooked. Absolutely. Totally hooked. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever I'm feeling right now, I need more of this. Yeah, that's true. Next thing you know, you're sitting out at front house for iHeartRadio and you're just like, Oh, okay. That's, I got all that, all that I can handle. This is, this is a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You're there, you know, you know, there with Drake and you too. And, Leonard Skinner and like, oh, I mean, Taylor Swift and Britney Spears and just the list goes on and on. It's like, you know, you're just going one after the next after the next. And it's like, how did I get here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'd imagine that's kind of the culmination of your eclectic experience. I mean, you oh. being out at front house for iHeart is every genre, the pinnacle of everybody from every corner of our industry, every designer wanting to get, have their input, Tom Kenny, uh, a handful of designers and programmers that are all kind of need you to coordinate a little bit of everything. Yeah. I imagine that's, you just thrive there. Yeah. That's great. iHeart is a, iHeart's a, a wonderful experience. Uh, it's really great because we get to see so many, I mean, I love the music and the music's great, but in, in the end, what, what sticks with me with iHeart are all the people that come through, like all the band LDs, all the production managers, everybody is, we're all trying to make an amazing pro product for their t band's 20 minute set, 25 minute set, whatever it is. And it's just that collaboration and just being able to see old friends and meet new friends and like, just have that, you know, pre our previous lounge is kind of like a, um, you know, it just, it's, it's a lounge, you know, it's like where people, you know, we're collaborating, we're ha laughing, we're you know, drinking a little bit, <laughs> you know, having, we're, and we're all having a good time and just like being, you know, in the moment with, with all those people is pretty, pretty wonderful. It really is great. And you kind of have to take input from every aspect and kind of tell people what they can and can't do yeah, where that, they can go. Yeah. That's, that can be a little bit of a hot potato or tight rope to walk, I guess, you know, where you're, you want to give their artists as much as you possibly can. And sometimes, you know, when you have younger bands that are coming through, they're playing earlier in the night and they, they have more inexperienced, um, you know, production people and LDs with them where they're used to going into a festival, loading their show file and, you know, cloning, you know, cloning away the night before in their hotel room. And then, you know, go, get going, you know, jumping off to the races. And the, our situation, I heard is totally different where you're really coming into a TV show that is uh, a festival in name only. And you still have to be, you know, be able to give them, give the artist that their artist a sense of what their show is and get the feel, but still being able to control the focuses, the, you know, the color, the, you know, the key light, the, the balance and, you know, and trying to come up with a, a way where you can work all that out for the, for the, for the artist and, you know, trying to convince or, I wouldn't even be convinced is not the right word, but compromise. Well, it's not, it's, it's not even a compromise. It's like you, you, you want, you, you're trying to explain it's, it's, it's like an, ex, you're trying to explain to somebody how this works and how this way is better than 
for this show is is a better process than so you're 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 explaining to them how this process makes their artist look better and the fact mm-hmm. that you know the fact that you know you can have a thousand cues running at one time and it's going to look amazing for the crowd but what does the artist look like in a close-up? Because that's 90% of what the show is. Right. You know, you have a shot of the drummer, you have a shot of the guitar player, and then you have a, a hero shot of your singer. And what's happening behind your singer? What beams are going through the le- between the talent and the lens? If you create all these crazy focuses, what's happening between the artist and the lens? And w- where you want to make sure that your artist looks perfect. And it could look moody. It could look... You know, we could do lots of different things, but it still needs to look good. And then you're trying to trying to talk somebody, you know, out of saying, all right, well, I need to have every light in the rig pointed down center and we're going to strobe them for, you know, a minute and a half and like or whatever it is. Not that most people say that, but, you know, trying to have some some semblance of, of like, you know, this is the picture. This is this. This is the event. We're fitting the vibe of your artist within this event. And we've created a, a, a methodology of working with different band LDs and with different production designers and to come up with a way that we can make this rig work for your act. And that's what we, that's what we try and do. Well, as one of the programmers who's been on the other side of that email, I am very thankful for you and the whole team for what the way you guys did. I didn't even have to show up. I just was able to just send some sketches, some color selections, and some tempos. And I got to stay in, uh, in LA and keep programming the tour while my artists were in Vegas at, uh, under your very capable hands yeah. and direction. It, and it was great. I felt well taken care of without even having to show up with right. uh, just a well, simple I'm, email. I'm like, you- hey, do this, don't do this, and you're off to the races. I'm glad you felt that way because that's what we try and do. We try and make everybody feel as comfortable as possible. Like, we'll, I mean, we'll, we'll go the extra mile to say, all right, all right, you know, we had Chris Smith come in with Sia and they, I mean, you know, Sia, I don't know if you remember what Sia's live production looks like, but it's super specific with, um, mm-hmm. you know, framed, framed up scenery and, um, you know, very specific video projection and everything is time coded and it's all has to be just super, super precise. And, you know, we were able to, collaborate with him using our rig using some of his existing programming information from his tour and his time code tracks and so we're able to then meld a lot of what he needed into what the broadcast also required so and, and in the end i think we came out he came out with a, a nice look that band was happy and the you know iheart was happy and you know the show was happy and we were happy with the way it all came together you know, those, very impressive. Those, those those collaborations are important. We'll go the absolutely go the extra mile. It's like, yeah, we we're not saying come in here and we're going to tell you exactly the way it needs to be, but we're going to say, all right, we're going to drive the boat so it looks like, you know, it's a TV show. It's going to it needs to have that quality to it. It needs to have mm-hmm. that sparkle to it, and we don't. And so we're going to work with you to make sure that it it has that all those elements, and your artist is still getting what they need. Mike, we are almost out of time. But I wanted to ask you about a specific quote that you have on your website that really kind of struck me. And I was hoping you could go deeper into what it means to you. The quote is, the moment you cheat 
for the sake of beauty, you know, you're an artist. What does that mean to you? And why did you, uh, why did you feel free to highlight that one? It's a David Hockney quote. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, David Hockney is a, uh, you know, an artist that deals in mixed media and he takes, you know, he, he does a lot of different things, uh, you know, painter and photographer and his, view his art really speaks to me and in a lot of ways his that quote sums up his approach where you know you like I take inspiration from everywhere and I you know in a lot of places you know a lot of people might consider that you know your inspiration is one thing but then you like you see something it's like oh I like that I'm gonna take that I'm gonna use it in my in my work and that in a lot of ways is where I feel like my whole career has been where I see something that I like and I take a little bit of that and I take a little bit of this and I take a little bit of this from all the different people I've had the amazing fortune to work with and then take all those, all those little bits and put, and that then informs my overall artistic view. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's a little cheeky to say it's a cheat, but I just thought that that, that spoke to me and it was kind of like the way I felt like I had cultivated my my aesthetic and what I, the way I like to see things and what I like to, how I like things to look is a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And I've just kind of taken all those little bits and pieces and put them together. And that has become, you know, what I like to see and the way I like to work and the, you know, the vision that I put out on the stage. Now that's a great way to summarize your, your reputation and your experiences. It's, it's very all encompassing and, and eclectic. Sounds like you taking a little bit from all over the all over your experiences and, and culminating them into your your own unique vision. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 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 glad that uh, that that's that, that that's coming through. I'm I mean, I'm I'm just uh, happy. I feel very fortunate to be in this business and very fortunate to be you know surrounded by people that who want to do good work and who are incredibly passionate about doing really excellent work and that for me has been like you know the greatest the greatest part of this whole you know my whole career is being around people that just want pursue excellence and want it want shows want everything to just be just right and it's just that i just love i love i love that and i love being part of that that world i fully agree with you i think that's a great way to look at it Thank you so much for making the time. I, uh, this has been really great. I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.